At eight years old, I think I was having nightmares almost every night. One in particular still sits in a remote corner of my mind, feet up, with a drink in hand. I'm in the cafeteria at school, just finishing up lunch. Our school had these long lunch tables, and they were already only about halfway full. I'm trying to choke down some mashed potatoes that have the consistency of Play-Doh when I hear it from the crowd of other kids over by the trash cans. Gasps, squeals, screams. I look over, and in the corner of the cafeteria, past the kids and past the trash cans, there's a wolf. It's mangy. Its hair is falling out. Its skinny, too, looks like it hasn't eaten in weeks. Its lips are curled back, making its face nothing but teeth and beady eyes, which, at that moment, lock onto mine. I know right then that it's here for me. I jump up from the table and make a move for the door, trying to get out of the cafeteria and out onto the playground, knowing that if I did that, I'd be somehow safe. But everything conspires against me. Other kids are in my way. The tables seem to shift and slide, blocking my path, and when I do have a chance to run, my legs give out and I fall to my knees. I look back and see the wolf, bounding through the crowd of children, staring me down and snarling, snapping its teeth, ready for a meal. I get up, get a few steps in. My legs are barely moving, paralyzed not only from fear, but from the unfair rules of the nightmare world. I hear the wolf right behind me, groaning, hungry, and then I hear it leap. There's silence while I brace myself for the pain. Then, its fangs are in my side. That's when I wake up in my bed, drenched in sweat, the muscles in my lower back still spasming from the nightmare wolf's bite. This month, on Death Dying and Other Things, two stories of childhood terror. In our first story, Just a Nightmare, a series of taps on his bedroom window are just the start of a nightmare a young boy can't escape from. In the second, Silly Bill, an imaginary friend, pushes a little girl to terrorize her brother. Death and dying are the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From MWHS, this is Death Dying and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. When I was 10 years old, we moved into a rural neighborhood in the Midwestern countryside. The neighborhood was spacious, each house occupying a plot of land an acre or more. Roads were wide and paved of rough asphalt that went too long between resurfacings. Animals, small and large, were a normal occurrence. The house my parents, my sister, and I moved into was on the outskirts of this already sparse community. The house was a small, split-level ranch, no more than a thousand square feet, but it was enough space that my parents, my sister, and I all got our own rooms, 
which was a change of pace from the small city apartment I had lived in since I was born. The backyard butted up against a tree line of an extensive woodland area. It was the perfect home to raise my sister and I in. A big backyard, lots of room to run, trees to swing on and climb and fall off of. It was like a dream. My room was the only room in the back of the house. It was on the opposite side of the living room from my parents and sisters. I remember thinking it was strange and being slightly jealous that my parents picked my sister to have a room near them, but that jealousy faded when we realized my room was bigger. What I liked most about my new room was the big window that looked out into the backyard. My dad put a salt lick out there. Sometimes I saw deer. In the woods behind the house was a small stone shack. A simple four walls, made out of large stones stacked on top of each other, and held together with some crude cement, and a ceiling of sticks and twigs. It was no more than three feet by three feet by three feet, about seventy-five feet into the woods, and when I saw it for the first time, just after we had moved in, and told my mom about it, she forbid me from going into the woods to play in it, said it was dangerous. But I could see it perfectly from the window in my room, and sometimes I would watch it. Nothing dangerous ever happened. Nothing happened at all, really. Sometimes a raccoon would run by. Sometimes a bird would land on it. That was about it. When I asked where it came from, my mom said some kids probably built it as a fort before we moved in. That only made me want to play in it more. My very own fort. A couple of weeks after I settled into my room, my eyes sprung open in the middle of the night. The moon was out, bright and full. I could see out the back window, all the way to the tree line and into the woods. It was clear, clear and peaceful. But I couldn't move. Oh God, why couldn't I move? I closed my eyes, concentrated. I tried to wave an arm, kick a leg, nothing. I opened my eyes and focused on the tree line. I was panicking. Was that an animal in the woods by the shack? Something was moving out there, but my vision was blurring. I blinked to try and focus my eyes, and when I opened them up, I saw a person. A person in the middle of the backyard just standing there. I shut my eyes tight, and the tapping started. Taps on the glass of my window. I don't know how long it lasted, because the next thing I remember is waking up with the sun shining through the window, warming up my cheeks. The morning was beautiful, and more importantly, I could move. As shaken up as I was, I couldn't enjoy the morning. I went straight to my parents. They insisted it was just a bad dream. That seemed like a logical explanation to ten-year-old me. I had nightmares. A lot. Two or three times a week. I had nightmares so often that I developed a kind of safety switch. When I realized I was dreaming, I'd shut my eyes tight, tight as I could, and then force them open. Opening my eyelids like that in my nightmare somehow opened them like that in the real world, and I'd sit in my dark room, alone. It was Sunday. We went to church, and I fell asleep during service. Nothing like that happened again for a few days, until the tapping woke me late on Wednesday night. My eyes stretched open, searched the window, and there was a hand, 
extending a single finger and tapping on the glass. Whoever the hand belonged to was standing out of sight. I could hear the television on in the living room. I tried to call out to my dad, and no sound came out. I couldn't move. Again, I couldn't move. A nightmare. My pulse was racing. It's just a nightmare. I closed my eyes, tight, just like I had taught myself to. The tapping stopped. I forced my eyes open and I woke up screaming. The hand was gone. Was I awake? I wiggled my toes. I could move. The TV in the living room was off. The house was dark. My alarm clock told me it was 2.22. Just a nightmare. My parents both threw open the door to my room, responding to the blood-curdling scream. Their faces turned from panic to pity, and my mom asked, Nightmare? I nodded. My face scrunched up, and I started crying. My mom hugged me on the bed. My dad crouched down and looked me in the eyes, smiled, and said I had nothing to be afraid of. I'd been doing this for years. It was wearing on them. They really were saints. When they calmed me down, I was more embarrassed than scared, but I still put the blankets up over my head and went back to sleep. When I got home from school the next day, my mom gave me a snack and I went outside to play. I ran around the backyard, kicking a soccer ball back and forth to myself while my little sister watched. She was sitting down in the grass near the tree line, playing with some of my old plastic trucks, driving them around, driving them into each other. I kicked the ball a little too hard and braced myself for what I was sure was going to be a direct hit on my poor little sister. Instead, the ball sailed right by her head. Unfortunately, that meant the ball headed right into the woods, and as I followed the ball's bounce about twenty feet past the tree line, I caught a glimpse of the stone shack and shuddered. At dinner that night, I told my parents that we should tear down the shack. I wasn't prepared for the obvious next question, why, and when I clammed up, it didn't go much further beyond my dad telling me it would be a lot of work and that they didn't have a lot of time as it is. But I think they knew that it was the stone shack I was having nightmares about. That's why I wanted it torn down. My mom gave me a bedtime snack that night, a glass of milk and sugar cookies. They were my favorite. I'll never forget what I woke up to that night. A nearly naked, heavily sagging old lady. Her skin was gray and barely hanging onto her bones. Her arms hung loosely at her sides. Her mouth was turned down into a frown, and her eyes were wide, staring directly into mine. She was standing inside the window, in my room. I tried to scream, but couldn't. I tried to keep my eyes open, but my lids were heavy. When they opened again, she was right next to me. She opened her mouth. I tried to grab my blankets, pull them up over my head, but my arms wouldn't move. I could smell her breath. It smelled like rotting hamburger meat. She clicked her tongue on the top of her mouth several times. 
and then said two words. The old lady raised a hand towards me. It was more like a claw. She dug deep into my side with her fingers. I closed my eyes tight and forced them open. It was morning. I was on the floor. Must have fallen off the bed. I could still feel her fingers holding on to me, but she wasn't there. She never was there. It was just a nightmare. Two weeks later, my teacher called my parents. I had been falling asleep at school almost every day. They got me in to see someone, and when I told her about the tapping, and the gray lady, and the stone shack in the woods, she brushed those aside and instead asked me if I remembered sleepwalking, if I remembered how I kept turning up in the living room, in the kitchen, and even the backyard a couple times. She asked me if I felt okay about my parents and about my sister. She asked if I was okay with the move, if I was making friends. She asked me why I kept ripping up my pajamas. When we were done, she prescribed me a mild sleeping aid. Half of a pill, before bed, would keep me asleep. She told my parents that next time, if this didn't keep me in bed, she'd consider something stronger for the sleepwalking. When my parents tried to get me to take it that night, I fought hard. Staying asleep was the last thing I wanted. I needed my safety switch, I told them. I needed to be able to wake myself up. My dad ended up restraining me while my mom pushed the pill to the back of my throat. She cried while she did it. They didn't want to hurt me. The gray lady was standing at the foot of my bed when my eyes opened up that night. She enjoyed watching me struggle against myself, unable to move. She dug a set of bony fingers into my pajama shirt and lifted me up by it. My head rolled. I tried to force my limbs to move, to fight back, but after all this time I knew there was no use. My heart raced. My eyes drifted closed. When I opened them, we were in the living room. My eyes closed again and we were in the kitchen. Once more, and we were at the back door. Just before the gray lady opened the back door, I heard my shirt rip. And bam, I hit the floor. I woke up in my bed. My parents had gotten into the habit of checking on me, and they must have found me by the back door and put me back into bed. They'd been doing that a lot. I cried. I was scared. What if the gray lady gets me, finally, one of these nights? I really didn't want to upset anyone. But I hadn't been able to stop crying when my mom called me for breakfast. And being at the breakfast table, face to face with my parents, didn't help. I understand now that they weren't angry. They were just helpless. They couldn't figure out how to comfort their son from a threat that wasn't real. And even the medication wasn't helping. I cried through all of breakfast. And afterward, my dad took my mom aside. They whispered. They glanced at me. When they were done speaking, my dad had me follow him into the garage. He handed me a shovel 
and he grabbed a sledgehammer. He put his hand on my shoulder. We walked outside, around to the back of the house, face to face with the woods. It was overcast, windy, cold. When we got to the edge of the woods and I could see the stone walls, my dad could sense my revulsion. He grabbed my shoulder firmly in his hand, smiled at me, and nodded toward the structure. He took a swing with the sledgehammer. Nothing. We tried to push it over. Nothing. We didn't have the right tools to bring this thing down. My dad stood there for a minute, looked at me, and said sorry. He'd find a way to bring this thing down. On a whim, I pushed aside a few of the sticks and branches, creating the makeshift roof on the thing, and looked inside. I've never been able to figure out why I did that. When I saw what was in there, I froze. My dad, concerned, moved me aside and looked in himself. His face turned pale. The thing was filled with bones, human bones, child's bones, and scraps of cloth. And resting on top were new, bright, colorful bits of cloth that matched the patterns on all my ripped pajamas. There's now a lot of different ways to listen to death, dying, and other things. You can still listen on SoundCloud if you prefer, or subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And if you like the show, be sure to leave a rating. It really helps us out. Melissa's first words were silly Bill. Not Ma, not Dad, not Mom, not Pa, not Mama. Silly Bill, clear as day. Silly Bill. My parents didn't know what to make of it, blamed the television, assured themselves there was a character somewhere named Silly Bill, but deep down I think they knew it wasn't the TV. Four-year-old me was just excited my sister was saying words. What did I know? When Melissa turned one, I was almost five. My parents were busy cleaning frosting off the carpet after my aunts and uncles and grandparents had all left. Even though my sister made out like a bandit on her first birthday with colorful toys and piles of clothes, I did okay myself with a couple of gifts from relatives who didn't want me to feel left out. I was pushing a toy truck across the floor, and Melissa was in a brand new bouncer patterned with children's show characters and had a teething ring in her hand that she wasn't chewing on. She still had pink frosting smeared across her cheek. My parents hadn't gotten to her yet on their cleanup detail. The TV was on in the background, a sports game. I remember the cheering. Must have been a football game because it was the middle of the winter. Must not have been a Vikings game, though, because my dad wasn't glued to the couch. I remember the cheering on the TV in particular because I didn't notice when the cheering turned into static. I pushed my truck along, following a red stripe in the living room rug, pretending it was a road. 
up over a bunch in the rug, pretending it was a hill, around my sister's bouncer, pretending it was a building, and back to where I started. I looked up at Melissa just as she went rigid, wide-eyed. I stopped pushing my truck. She stared off into space over my shoulder. Was she okay? Was she having a fit? I was just about to call for my parents in the other room when her mouth curled into a smile, and she started laughing. Silly Bill! Silly Bill! She bounced with renewed vigor and extended the teething ring toward where she was staring. My head spun around involuntarily, and all I saw was static on the TV. Silly Bill! Silly Bill! Silly Bill! She was screaming by this point. Silly Bill! Silly Bill! Silly Bill! There was no stopping her. She bounced and squealed and laughed, wide-eyed, like she'd gone mad. My parents finally ran into the room to see what was the matter. The blood had drained from my face. My heart was in my throat. I felt faint, nauseous. My mom raced over to Melissa to pick her up and carry her off to get cleaned up. My dad walked over to the TV to give it a whack, and when that didn't work, he mumbled something about the cable company and went into the kitchen to pick up the phone. I was left alone in the living room. Alone with Silly Bill. I tried to tell my parents that Melissa, when she was screaming about Silly Bill, was pointing and looking at something. Something in the room. But they didn't believe me and told me I was causing trouble and got angry when I wouldn't drop it. Melissa was their favorite, I could tell. And they were going to play favorites. I tended to avoid Melissa after this. She would look at me and smile and look over my shoulder and smile wider. It made me nervous. When we got family photos taken, the photographer could never get her to look at the camera and stop craning her neck to look over at me. Or past me. During candid photos, she was always staring off into space and smiling. And she'd sit in her room for hours and talk to Silly Bill. When I had to use the bathroom, I'd run past her room for fear I'd catch a glimpse of Silly Bill. I started covering my ears when I was running past so I didn't have to hear her talking. One night, more than a year and a half later, I woke up to a soft thud. 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 My eyelids stuck together and I blinked a few times and the dark ceiling came into focus. I laid still, stared upward and listened. Thud. 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 It rang like a knocking on a hollow box. Almost musical. Like a wood block tuned to a certain note. It was slow and regular. Thud. 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 It couldn't be a tree branch hitting the house. It couldn't be the house settling like my parents always said noises like this were. And then I realized the most alarming of the thud's qualities. It was clear. Clear as could be. Not muffled from traveling through walls. A gasp got caught in my throat as my mind caught up to my adrenal glands already flooding my small body with hormones trying to get me to run. Instead, I froze solid underneath my blankets. I let my head drift to the side most of my view was obscured by blankets, my pillow, or shadow. But through a small gap in all three of those, I spied my wooden toy chest and the lid that was slowly rising 
and then falling rapidly. Thud, thud, thud. My eyes went wide. My mouth went dry. I took a deep breath and snaked my hand underneath my cool sheets. I grabbed the blankets and pulled them down, shaking, hesitant. I saw the top of a head and released the blankets. My heart took off. Every muscle in my body trembled. I worked up the courage to try again and grabbed the blanket. I pulled it down slowly. I got to the top of the head. Thud, thud, thud. Kept pulling. Thud, thud, thud. And revealed my sister's face. I sat up, puzzled. She was raising the lid to my toy chest and letting it fall. Thud, thud, thud. Melissa, what are you doing? I asked her. I waited for her to answer, but she didn't. Just kept at the toy chest. Thud, thud, thud. Melissa? She turned her head to smile at me. Silly Bill wants to play. She dropped the lid one last time and grabbed the blankets at the foot of my bed, yanking them off with all her might, pulling them off me and stumbling backwards into the wall. The back of her head cracked against the drywall and she screamed. My parents flipped on the light in my room a few moments later. What did you do to her? My mom asked. She picked up Melissa, cradled her head, and left the room before I could even answer. I heard Melissa cry all the way down the hall. My dad turned to me. We'll talk about this in the morning, he said. He flipped off the light and shut my door behind him. I slid off my bed and grabbed the blankets off the floor as quick as I could manage, pulling them up to my eyes. I scanned the shadows of my room, wondering if Silly Bill was still in there with me. The Silly Bill stuff calmed down for a while after that. Melissa would mention him, and I would tense up, and whatever parent I was with would swap me and tell me it was just an imaginary friend, and imagination was good, and maybe I should try it sometime. But beyond that, nothing happened like the living room, or the toy chest. I did have an imagination as a kid, to be fair. I pretended to go to space, or fight crime, or race cars. My imagination just didn't involve dreadful, malevolent beings that made me terrorize my siblings. Years later, two weeks after I turned nine years old, I woke just after midnight, bladder full of the soda pop I had with dinner. It was hard to even roll out of bed. I balked at the imaginary barrier between my room and the dark hallway. I was in pain. I danced and held myself to avoid wetting my shorts, but something wasn't right out in the hall. I couldn't decide what it was, and I wasn't very analytical as a child. The hallway seemed unusually long, but it always did at night. It was quiet, except for the wind outside, and that wasn't unusual. I couldn't hold it anymore. I pranced the first few steps into the hallway and stopped short. Was that a giggle? I couldn't see anything in the shadows. My ears playing tricks on me, I decided. What else could it be? 
I'm just being jumpy. It's the wind. Another couple of steps and I heard it again. A little girl giggling. Can't be, I told myself. Just get to the bathroom, pee, and get back into bed where you'll be safe. A few more steps and I could finally see where the giggles were coming from. My sister's door was wide open and she was crouched in the shadow, just inside, watching me, giggling every time I moved. What are you doing? I asked. She only answered with more soft laughter. I danced in place and bit my lip. Go back to bed, I said. But again, she didn't move, and I had to give up. I turned to waddle the last couple feet to the bathroom. Silly Bill's going to get you, Melissa said. A shadow at the end of the hall. A shadow that shouldn't have been there. A shadow I should have seen as out of place from my room shifted towards me. I screamed and pissed myself. The next morning, I ate breakfast across the table from my sister and wondered where Silly Bill was. Was he sitting next to my sister watching me? Was he up in her room, planning and plotting? Was he standing next to me? In the kitchen, my parents tried to speak low enough that I wouldn't hear. They weren't successful, and I heard a lot about emotional problems and acting out and getting help. My sister looked up from her plate and smirked. What? I asked. Silly Bill is being silly. I picked up my plate and brought it into the kitchen. My parents hushed their conversation when I walked in. I handed my mom my mostly intact plate of eggs, bacon, and toast and said, I'm not hungry. She looked at my father and tilted her head. And now he's not eating, she said, no longer concerned that I could hear them. My dad rubbed his sweaty forehead. Okay, you win. We'll get him in somewhere. Therapy is something I know nothing about. I never went to my first session. The night before my parents had scheduled for me to meet my therapist, my sister asked me to play a game of cards. Like go fish? I asked. No, she said. We're going to play Silly Bill. I eyed my parents, sitting on the couch nearby, and they stared at me, measuring how I reacted. I calmed my now racing heart with a couple of deep breaths. Isn't that your friend? I asked. Yes. And there's a game called Silly Bill, too? Yes. Did Silly Bill teach you how to play? Yes. I looked at my parents again. My mom crossed her arms. Okay, I said to Melissa. Let's play. She dealt the cards. Three for each of us. Then she picked hers up. I followed her lead. I didn't know how to play, after all. I had three cards. Three of diamonds, eight of clubs, and nine of hearts. She eyed me over her cards and then put hers face up on the table in front of us. Now yours, she said. I put mine down. She had a queen of diamonds, a jack of hearts, 
and a king of spades. She smiled at me. I win. Wait, how do you win? I don't even know how to play, I said in protest. I win, she repeated. My jack stabs your cards. The king sends them to be buried, and the queen puts a rose on their grave. My blood ran cold. My sister was so earnest in her description. She had to have been coached to say that. I looked at my parents again. For the first time since Melissa was born, I saw worry on their face. Okay, I said. You win. I didn't want to play anymore. Now I get the prize, she said. She looked me in the eye, and then her eyes were drawn right past my left shoulder. A slight chill hit the back of my neck, almost like a breath. Melissa's smile went wide. What prize? My dad asked her. She produced a scissors from beneath her dress and held it up, and then growled, I get to see what's on Mikey's insides. She lunged at me. She got one good stab in before my parents pulled her off me, wailing like a banshee. I laid on the carpet, a scissors embedded in my chest up to the handle. I was sure I would die. I spent the next five days in the hospital. My parents would never tell me what happened to my sister, and after a while, I stopped asking. The rest of my childhood was pleasant, but I never could shake the feeling that they blamed me for what had happened. They took me to sports, taught me to drive, took photos when I went to prom, cried when I moved out, and clapped at my graduation. But it was never really the same. I've tried not to think of Silly Bill the past 25 years, but every so often he creeps back into my skull. Almost a compulsion. Uncontrollable. I'm sitting on the couch and watching the evening news, trying to imagine how my life would have been different if it wasn't for Silly Bill. The TV's relaying better news than usual, but I know that won't last. My wife's writing music in her studio. I can hear the sweet tones of the score she's composing. My four-year-old daughter Annabelle dances up to me, the furls of her green dress dancing behind her. She holds something behind her back and smiles. Will you play cards with me, Daddy? She asks. Sure, I say, doting on my daughter the way I think all fathers do. She reveals the deck of cards that she holds behind her back. She slides the cards out of the sleeve, slowly, carefully. I watch her mix up all the cards across the coffee table and then say, You want to see Daddy shuffle? Yes, she says, smirking. I gather up all the cards and give them a good shuffle. She watches. Her face lights up like she's seeing real, actual magic happen right in front of her. Do you want to try? Yeah, but her fingers are too small, of course. Okay, let's play, she says. Okay, I say in return. What are we playing? 
She deals us each three cards and says, We're going to play Silly Bill. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both Just a Nightmare and Silly Bill, were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Hinges That Squeak and Stairways That Creak. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a production of MWHS. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Thank you.